You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Off the knuckles, out number two. Liner to short, Liliano has his no-hitter. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. Enjoy more of the things you love with TCL. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind. You know, when we're not playing so well, uh, you know, stick with us. Uh, you know, we're going to play hard each and every night. Uh, you know, we try not to make mistakes, but sometimes it happens. And, uh, you know, just, just, just keep... Uh, Keep your, you know, keep your eyes on us. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for watching us. That's basically it. Thank you. All right. Welcome in, Mackie and Judd's Minnesota Sports Rewind, where we do deep dives into prominent Minnesota sporting events, games, trades, moments, etc. 20-plus episodes available on the Minnesota Sports Rewind podcast feed, Apple, Spotify, and scorenorth.com. And gentlemen, we got Judd, we got Declan here producing. This episode is all about the 2011 Minnesota Twins, the Tsuyoshi Nishioka Minnesota Twins. And those clips you heard off the top, I actually, I admit, like I did a deep dive. I covered that team. And of all the things that happened that year, I actually forgot until right before we jumped into this episode that Francisco Liriano threw like a six walk no hitter in Chicago. You covered it. (laughs) against the white Sox, you covered that uh, game you were I, there in person. I was there. yeah i have a story about that actually which we'll get into later on here that i'm sort of ashamed to tell but this is a safe space oh, you've told, it, you've told it before come on recycle it bring <laughs> it out baby i will i'll tell i'll tell it when we get to the to the key question uh but this this season I think this is the, part of the reason why we chose this season for this week is because Major League Baseball is uh, instituting a 60-game season. And I think the 2011 Twins are a great example of how 60 games can be a total mirage crapshoot for what a team actually is. And we'll get into some of that too. But I want to set the scene and go through a summary of events and, and Judd, stop me as I go along here. And then we'll get into some of the key questions. But the Twins were coming off, going into 2011, the Twins were coming off a decade of American League Central dominance. Six division titles in 10 years, a bunch of playoff appearances, but they kept running into the same brick wall in the playoffs, mostly the Yankees, uh, who swept them in the 2010 ALDS and previously in the 2009 ALDS as well. And so going into the 2010-11 offseason, Really, the, the the two main themes for the Twins, which, by the way, the Twins had no thought of entering a rebuilding phase or a down period. They had just moved into Target Field a year prior. They had one of the best records in baseball the year before as well. Yeah, they, you know, in their minds, Justin Morneau was coming back healthy, and he was maybe the best player in baseball the first half of 2010. And so, the two main themes going into the season were number one: let's get the band back together as much as possible and run it back and just try again. And number two, speed. Got to get greasy, fast, speed. National League get, Pretty much. Same as Carlos get, baseball, mid-80s? Yeah, that's, so Ron Gardenhire throughout the winter meetings and the offseason talked about, listen, we just got to get faster on the base paths. You look at some of these other teams in the American League, like the Rays 
and they've they just got better athletes all over the field. So got to get faster on the base paths, faster in the field. And so they jettisoned slow-footed and injured shortstop J.J. Hardy. They traded him to the Baltimore Orioles. Can you guys remember who J.J. Hardy was traded for? It was, uh, Jim Hoy? There was two pitchers and Jim, um, Jacob, Jim Jacobson. Brent Casey Jacobson? Jacobson or something? And, and, yeah. I, and I think both. I know Jacobson pitched for the St. Paul Saints, and I, and I think Jim Hoy was also an American Association indie ball guy. So they traded for two indie ball players. And Hoy was a was known as a guy who, who could throw pretty hard, correct? Yeah. As, as they yeah. tried yeah. to... As they rebelled against the pitch-to-contact notion that they would actually not want guys who throw hard, which, of course, they didn't. Correct. Yeah, Jim Hoy could throw hard, but, uh, yeah, he needed a strike zone the side of the the, the Great Wall of China. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So so they trade away J.J. Hardy. J.J. Hardy winds up hitting 30 home runs in Baltimore. And if, if I remember correctly, the Baltimore trainers healed his injured wrist, and then he threw the Twins training staff under the bus when the Orioles visited Target Field in 2011. So that was a thing. But the Twins' main thing in the offseason was setting their sights on Japanese batting champion Siyoshi Nishioka, who batted 345 in the peak of his prime, 27, 25, 26 years old, somewhere in there. He's in his mid-20s. Yep. And they said, this is our guy right here. He's going to bring speed. He's going to bring... Uh, a batting champion prowess from Japan. Yep. And he's only going to cost, you know, it was, it was like a $10 million guaranteed contract or something and spread over three years. They paid a posting fee as well, right? A couple million yeah. bucks or something uh, like that for the posting fee. I think it was like $5 million. Yeah. Okay. Something like that for a posting. But this fee. was going to be their shortstop for the long term. This was it. Like this, they, they thought, they thought they were getting the, like the next great international player, maybe not quite each year, but they thought they were getting. Sure a great starting caliber middle infielder. And we'll get more into that as well. But the twins entered the season with the highest opening day payroll in team history, $112 million payroll, which was nearly double what the payroll had been just two years prior. And so I don't know where this narrative came from. Like, well, you promised us you were going to raise the payroll and you didn't like they literally doubled their payroll from 2009 through 2011. Mm-hmm. And it was a disaster at the end. So they out, out of the gate, they lose their first two games in Toronto, a combined 19 to four. The next series, Nishioka gets his leg broken because he didn't understand that American players slide hard into second base. The next week, Joe Maurer was ruled out with what the team coined bilateral leg weakness. And the Twins ultimately started 17 and 37 in the first two months of the year, 20 games under 500 and 16 and a half games out of first place. But then a funny thing happened, gentlemen, starting on June 2nd, the Twins rattled off 15 wins in 17 games, closing to within six and a half by mid-June. They shaved 10 games off the division lead in like two and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. And it culminated in San Francisco, if you guys remember, I do. with an eight-run first inning off Madison Bumgarner. And it was a celebration. It was like, on a Sunday, Dick right? Dick Bramer didn't know what was happening. Um, no, it was. I think it was, the, it was a weeknight. It was like it was a, a Thursday Tuesday. night. It was a Tuesday. I remember vividly coming back from Chicago from a family vacation and seeing the score in the Delta airport saying eight, nothing yeah. twins first inning. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, of course the, you know, from, from a 1500 ESPN standpoint at the time. So I had started sort of tongue in cheek at first, but then it turned into a thing, this hashtag it's happening. It was the early days of Twitter and it like it's happening started trending 
basically during every Twins game because they were winning every game during that period. And we had, I'm not going to throw people under the bus here, but like we had a promotions person uh, who worked for us. And like we had t-shirts ready to rock and roll. This thing was hot before that Giants game. Mm-hmm. Hey, the twins, the twins are making a comeback in the division. Like this is what they do. They come back 2009. They came back in September. You know, this is, this is the little engine that could twins again, right? They're going to come back from 20 games under 500. It's happening. And it became a huge thing. And we had t-shirts basically ready to rock and roll. And, uh, and I remember like sending an email out before the San Francisco giants game say, Hey, are we, can we, can we promote this? Like, can we, if, you know, if they win again tonight, can we promote this? And it was like, ah, actually um, I need another like day or two because of something like the website link isn't working or like some, something. And they go on an eight Oh run on the first inning. And we would have sold 500 t-shirts on Twitter, like the second year of Twitter's popularity. And as it turns out, um, that was the peak. <laughs> that was it right there. Like, so they, they grinded the division lead down to five yeah. by mid July. They played pretty well until mid July. And, and so from that, from that first week in June until toward the end of July, the twins were 33 and 19 over that stretch. And that's a 52 game stretch, which they played 103 win baseball. 33 and 19 is a 103 win pace. So they played for, for basically a third of the season. The twins had the best record in baseball, 33 and 19, a 103 win pace. And they wind up finishing 63 and 99 on the year. Well, and nobody, and Amazing. It, it's one of the greatest um, franchise collapses too, right? Because nobody saw this coming and everybody thought, you know, year two target field, it's going to be great again. This team is going to be fantastic, blah, blah. Here's the interesting thing uh, about that dark period in sports in this town too. Think about this. Within basically a two season period, you have what would are probably two of the top five most disappointing because of expectations, seasons in Minnesota sports history. Because the 2010 Vikings are one of the greatest disappointments given what we thought in 2009 and Favre's coming back. And and to use Phil's term, the band's back together. It's going to be great. And the 2010 Vikings go in the proverbial crapper. The coach gets fired. Everything goes wrong. And the Twins was sort of the same thing. You know, 2010 Target field, man, you're in the new ballpark. And then, again, to Phil's point, the payroll goes up. And so, at that time, the expectation was, look, the poll ads are spending now. And this is only going to get better. And and so, within a two-season period of time in football and baseball, I think that you could make a very good case that as far as expectations and then subsequent disappointment, those are two top five seasons in the history of uh, of both teams, which in the Vikings and twins case started in 1961 ever. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Ever. <laughs> and, and like just to like the most shocking bad seasons, right? right? Back to back. Right. That's disaster. the thing is if you know, you're going to be crap, nobody cares. Like, right. it's like, okay, they're crappy. I knew they were going to be crap. And the twins have had a lot of those years. Of, yes. of course, starting in 2012, they had a lot of th- those years. And the same thing held true in the early eighties. But this was a season where we all thought, I, I mean, I remember going and trying to get tickets on the street outside Target Field in the summer of 2010. And I kid you guys not, my buddy and I went to a Saturday afternoon, of course, sold out Rangers-Twins game. And on the street, the asking price, regular season game, I want to say it was like June, okay? $100 a piece. Yeah. Like, that's how (laughs) hot the stadium was. That's how hot the team was. That's how much this town at that point, and, you know, rightfully so, had embraced that team. A hundred bucks. 
three years after that, you couldn't have given those tickets away. Yes. So that brings us to our first key question here. Let's get right into him. Was Siyoshi Nishioka the worst free agent signing in Twins history, Judd? Mm. Well, you know, Phil, this is difficult because we do have some decent choices. You know, Dude, it's, 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 it's so Ricky Nolasco's on yeah, that list. Ricky Nolasco. Ricky Nolasco was like, at least he gave, like, he wasn't. He gave you some okay. quality starts. Here, here's why. Here's why I think the answer, and I might be wrong here, but here's why I think the answer to your question is yes. Expectation, not only of the public but the team itself. Like it felt like Terry signed Nolasco because, well, Terry, you got to sign somebody. Okay, I'll give this dunderhead the money. Okay, because he was just a gearhead. He was an idiot. Um, but Nishioka comes here, and it's not just us. It's management which, by the way, really hadn't scouted him efficiently. But it's management saying, this guy is for real. Here's why I think it's number one, though. (laughs) Back to the point about J.J. Hardy. Maybe not a great player, but a productive player, right? Offensively pretty damn good. And and when you sign Nolasco, you didn't then take a good pitcher and be like, we're going to trade you, right? You also traded away a competent who could have helped you shortstop for a couple of years at least – because you were so confident that in retrospect, a guy who you found out couldn't play shortstop, could not play shortstop, you were confident that he could play shortstop. So I think if we put the Nishioka um, stew together and blend it all up with what transpired, I think the answer to your question is yes. I I agree. Uh, He is unequivocally, (laughs) and I don't want this to be hyperbole, but – but I believe that he is the worst Major League Baseball player I've ever seen play with my own two eyes. Wow. Major leaguer. I'm not talking about like, you know, like I saw, you know, minor league call-ups in September and stuff that you're testing. I mean, dudes who like were on the team and signed millions of dollars, wow. opening day roster, not September call-up guys. Like, Joe, you know, Joe Benson was up for 11 games. Like, I'm not counting guys like that. I mean, like. Joe Benson was going to be dudes- a stud. What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I went down a rabbit hole because Joe Benson, his his one and only year in the major leagues was 2011, was this season. And he was a Baseball America top 100 prospect. He was the Twins minor league player of the year at one point. Yes, he was. And, and two years ago, as of two years ago, he was playing in, uh, is it the American? Association? He, he, uh, maybe, he was playing for the, um, no, it might have been a different league. He was playing for the uh, Chicago Dogs. Yeah, that's that's the American Association now. They're part of the okay. American Association. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and he was, you know, basically like he was quoted in an article saying like, "I'll literally take a call from any affiliated minor league team." He hit three hundred, so he's mashing. But but Siyoshi <laughs> Nishioka, okay, Siyoshi Nishioka yeah. played seventy one games for the Twins, seventy one games. So so basically a half of a half a season uh, over the course of two thousand eleven two thousand twelve, he had five extra base hits, five extra base hits in seventy one games. Yeah. And he was brought in because of speed, right? He's gonna he's gonna inject speed, greasy, fast speed. He was caught stealing twice as often as he stole bases, and he couldn't field a ground ball. But he could smoke. Short or he, could sm- he could smoke those cigarettes, baby. He, did. he was known for going into the laundry area uh, where they would wash all the uniforms and stuff, and he would rip Peters. The other, the, I would say, the the biggest benefit Siyoshi Nishioka brought to the Twins was in his contract. He demanded that one of the four 
toilet stalls in the twins clubhouse bathroom be turned into a Japanese bidet. Yeah. Because, you know, culturally he had been for 25 years of his life. I love a bidet. It's a little self-cleaning, a little yeah. splashy, splashy action. Splashy, splashy. And, yeah. and as far as I know, as of two years ago, that bidet was still in the twins clubhouse. So <laughs> good for the twins. That might for, be a good story. The search for, it in. for the bidet. Yeah. Is the bidet still there? So. so I think the, the biggest, um, I don't know what the word is like the like to me one the thing that stands out the most I guess when thinking back to the Nishioka era was how quickly his narrative changed from spring training until like halfway through the year and even like the, the first few games you saw him before he got his leg broken the second series so he comes in to Fort Myers and you know the the first full team workout is usually on like February 18th or February 20th or something and but but guys usually show up a few days beforehand, sometimes a week beforehand, and some guys just live down there, mm-hmm. and they'll go to the ballpark, and you'll see like even five days before the full organized team workout, you'll see guys on these side fields taking batting practice and and doing organized drills just amongst the players. And um, and Nishioka was down there. He got down there a little bit early because usually Japanese spring training starts like, like a couple weeks before American spring training, and so he wanted to get down there, and he had uh, his translator. He had his nutritionist, he had his trainer, and some other, like maybe his agent, because there was four people that were in his group all the time. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the first week before official workouts began, Twins players were working out in a group, kind of just like unofficial workouts on a side field. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they kept asking Nishioka, hey, do you want to come join us? Like, come take around balls with us, come hang out with us. And he uh, and he said, no, I need to do my own thing for the week. And so he wore his own his own like branded jersey and warm up pants. He wouldn't wear the twin stuff. And he had his four handlers, his translator, like his trainer, et cetera, et cetera. And they would go through all the drills with him. So you'd see the twins working out on one field over here. And Nishioka with his entourage would be running laps on the warning track on another field and taking fly balls and stuff. And so right off the bat, it was like, okay, there's definitely a cultural difference here. And okay, if this guy needs to come in, he's coming from a different country. If he's got to do his own thing to feel comfortable, that's cool. But right away, players were kind of like, is this guy like a prima donna? Like he can't, he's got, he's got four handlers. Like Joe Maurer doesn't have a handler. He makes $23 million a year. Like what's this guy's deal? So there was like right out of the gate, there was this sort of feeling of, all right, why is this guy doing his own thing for a week? Why doesn't he come hang out with us and get to know us? And even in the clubhouse, like he just kind of sat off by himself. And there's, again, there's a language barrier. And so I get that it's kind of difficult. It's very on twins like though. Didn't it is. They, didn't they, um, it, we, we found out eventually that their, their scouting of him though had basically been watching a few tapes here and there, but no, nobody had really <laughs> scouted him truly oh. from Billy Smith's staff. And so they, they essentially didn't know small things like he didn't know the double play um, in, in, the big leagues was going to be the same as turning yeah. a double play at home. So, um, yeah, as, as, as far as I have heard, they clearly didn't do enough homework. I mean, that's right. That's obvious, right? But they, like didn't do <laughs> nearly enough. Right. But the one thing that they didn't do for sure that they, that they would not be guilty of now, because now I think the twins are one of the five or six most analytically forward front offices in major league baseball. Yep. But you got to remember in 2009, 2010, the twins did not give a hoot about analytics. They basically had one guy. Uh, they had Jack going essentially. And Jack 
and like Jack needed to be cloned nine. I, I, I always thought Jack was, uh, was really good in that area for the twins and went on to work for the diamondbacks and, and became a scout for them too. But like, he was like the only guy working in analytics in their front office. And they had a couple other guys too, that were like, they had a couple like interns and maybe a part-timer or something. But one thing they did not look at was Siyoshi Nishioka's analytics. And I don't know how much film study they did, or I know they had a scout who went out there and watched him, but they've all, they've always been kind of secretive and protective about who actually like was responsible for the signing of Nishioka. Yes. But I can tell you that yes. one comb through Siyoshi Nishioka's analytics, you'd see a guy who for the first four or five years of his Japanese career was a pretty good player. And even like the back of the batting car, uh, bat, back of the batting card stats would say like, oh, he hit, he hit, you know, 270, 280. He batted 258 two years before the twins signed him in Japan, which mm-hmm. is a red flag. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, if you're batting 258 in Japan, which is the equivalent of maybe double A baseball in the, in the United States, that's a problem. So he batted 345 the year before the twins signed him. And it was built largely off of luck. There's something called batting average on balls in play that essentially says like, you know, if you, if you had, you know, 10 seeing eye singles that are not based on how hard you hit the ball or, you know, you just, you just got lucky because you beat the shift a couple times. Uh-huh. Um, batting average on balls in play would help show you that. And you could then correct and say, well, if you were to bring his batting average on balls in play down to a normal level for a player of his speed and caliber, really he would have been a 290 hitter instead of a 345 hitter. So that the twins thought they were getting a 345 hitter. They were really getting like a 290 hitter who got lucky. In double A basically they, though. Yes. <laughs> so he was going to yeah. translate to about 230 in the big leagues. Correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And um Whoops. and my favorite my favorite Nishioka game, I think if well there's actually my favorite Nishioka game is the 2012 game where he came back, they called him up and he dropped a pop-up and like butchered a two hopper to second base. And Dan Gladden was on the call and like, you know, he makes these two errors and, you know, ball bounces off his chest and he's like laying on the ground face down. And Dan Gladden just goes "Mm." (laughs) on the broadcast. But my other favorite Nishioka game was in mid August of 2011. It was at Cleveland. You guys might remember watching this game on TV. So Carl Pavano was on the mound. Uh, by this point, the twins were like, they had kind of started to slide again. They weren't completely out of it, but like things were kind of going the wrong way. And so there was some frustration. Nishioka had come back from the knee injury mm-hmm. or the leg injury. The twins are up one to nothing. It's in the sixth inning. They're grinding it out. They're just trying to get a win. The Indians leadoff hitter reaches with a bunt single. So one paper cut. Uh, the next guy reaches on an infield single to shortstop and Nishioka. It was one of those plays where like it was ruled a hit, but Nishioka should have made the play and at least like gotten out at second base. Right. And then a couple batters later with runners on first and third, Taylor made ground ball to end the inning and to get the twins back in the dugout into the seventh inning with a one nothing lead. And Nishioka just butchers this Taylor made ground ball and the Indians tie the game. They go on to win the game like three to two. But after the inning was over, Carl Pavana goes into the dugout and just destroys the water cooler with a bat, breaks the bat, and uh, and walks back into the clubhouse. And then to his credit, after the because I mean Nishioka basically ruined the inning and ruined the game, like because he can't feel it shortstop. And after the game was over, Carl Pavana was asked, you know, hey, what happened? You know, you know, it's got to be <laughs> tough when you're like when you're pitching that well and your shorts like your shortstop makes an error. And Carl Pavano just owned all of it. He said publicly anyways, he said, listen, I just have to make better pitches. I have to do a better job. Like I, I can't put one. my, I can't put my feelers in a position where they have to like, 
<laughs> my my favorite uh, part about that freak out too, and maybe I can pull up the video here as I say it. But Scott Baker's in the corner and just like has to slowly <laughs> step over as his teammate is destroying the trash can. Absolutely destroying the trash can. Let's see if I can pull that's, it that's like, It's hilarious. Like when you see when you see guys going bonkers on a water cooler, the reaction of the players, like players are trying to just like keep watching the game. Like right. They don't want to. They want to play it cool, but they know that their teammates those guys freaking out. Were pr- probably at that point in time, <laughs> rightfully so, upset that Nishioka was even back up here. I mean, yeah. it made no sense. But here's the okay. So here's the in- interesting thing, though, about those twins. So Bill Smith gets fired then in November of eleven, and Terry comes back. Think about how the twins' history tracks differently if the twins had basically decided, you know what, Billy really missed there. And Billy has to go. That's that's great. That's all fair. But we're not going back to our old ways because Terry came because Terry came back and had clearly lost the fastball by that point as well. And the game had changed on him. How much different is the Twins' history two thousand post two thousand eleven if they go out at that point and say, you know what, the game is changing, and, and the Falvies and Levines of the world are now the guys, and so. It wouldn't have been those two, but we're going to make that type of move with those type of baseball minds, starting with the 2012. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a great alternate reality because I think you know if you would have if you would have found the Derek Falvey Thad Levine equivalent and you would have gotten to the forefront of analytics and player evaluation and you know like forget it, like some people get tripped up by the word analytics. Let, let's just get rid of analytics and say if you would have been at the forefront of scouting and player development, which the twins were 10 years prior. Absolutely. Terry was and, great. And, and that world changed player development changed yep. and the way that you go about accumulating information changed. And so I think the the best thing that could have, I, I don't, I, I think your peak was still going to be 2010. Cause that's Justin, like we'll get into the, some of the other stuff here, but like Justin Morno, a new front office wasn't going to bring Justin Morno's head back, you mm-hmm. know? Um, a new front office wasn't going to... But your scouting would have changed greatly. Yeah. And I th- think that's yeah, core I, of players. Yeah, and and maybe some of those guys would have developed differently. Maybe maybe the Trevor Plouffe, um, Anthony Swarzak, like some of these guys who are first and second round draft picks that, that went on to have some success, but maybe didn't maximize their potential. Mm-hmm. Um, like Trevor, I look at a guy like Trevor Plouffe and think, man, like that dude was a first round pick, great power, could play almost any position on the diamond and was just sort of part of this broken down development system relative to some of the top teams in baseball. Like what could, what could have that dude, what could that dude have done in the Falvey Levine pipeline? How about pitching too, though? Mm-hmm. If, if you had, if you had had starting in um, 2012 ish, if you had had a developmental system that understood where pitching was going at that time and the development of that pitching, Think about all the years of horse bleed pitching that we saw that didn't have to happen because yeah. you you essentially had a baseball staff that, you know what, late 90s in, into the 2000s was really damn good. And the game just changed. And it's not their yeah. fault. It's not their fault. But the Twins, uh, going back to Terry and, and insisting that they could recapture that magic was perhaps one of the most flawed things that we've seen decision-wise in sports in this town. Yeah, in fact, 2011 is a great. I'm just I'm just pulling up the pitchers who who made starts that season. Um, th- this was the first year where they started to run out sort of the next generation of. All right, we got to bring some guy like Liam Hendricks made his first four career starts in 2011. The twin and, and he wound up just flaming out. Well, Liam Hendricks 
became one of the best relievers in baseball like five years later. Mm-hmm. And the Twins didn't really know what to do with him. Kevin Slowey made eight starts. Anthony Swarzak made 11 starts. Scott Diamond made his first seven starts in the major leagues that year. And then, the, and then that led into this era of just barren, empty cupboards of pitching. Uh, let me get to the next key question here for you guys, 2011 Twins. How much did injuries play a role in this train wrecking uh, in in the train wreck season and also just in the train wrecking of an era of Twins baseball? Because you look at 2011, Justin Morneau was still reeling from concussion issues. In fact, he was just – 2011 was his worst year as a major leaguer. He wound up playing in in 69 games and batted just 227 with four home runs. He just – he had a wrist injury. He had a foot injury. Mm -hmm. He had the concussions. Uh, Joe Maurer, which we'll get to this too, he had the bilateral leg weakness and like the the knee surgery fallout. Jason Kubel had a foot injury. This was the year that Denard Spann had to sit out games because of vertigo issues. Scott Baker had elbow issues. Like everything broke down, and it wound up actually leading to the Twins changing up their training staff and everything. But um, you know how much if if this team had the full allotment of players in their prime healthy. I don't think it train wrecked. I think injuries were actually a huge part of the train wreck for 2011. Yeah, I, I think it, it was now, as, as we go back and look at the season, it was a combination of things. It was decisions that were really, really bad, and, and so they take the blame for that. The The development in the system had, by this point, started to go awry, and that be, and that became key. Uh, but there is no question, and and the one to me that I come back to because it changed, 2011 changed how people felt about the Twins, rightfully so. But it also changed the narrative forever of Joe Mauer's yes. Mauer's narrative and Mauer's career. Look, for the last what Phil seven years, eight years got really murky, really dicey. He yep. he had been make no mistake a hometown hero, okay? So, like, this was not a player who in 09, we were like, yeah, he's had a good year, but he should do more. No. Yeah. Um, and I I do think that if Maurer doesn't get hurt and, and they move into target field, that people will still, still would have moaned and whined about the power because the power in the Metrodome was going to be different than it was in the new ballpark, okay? So I will give you that. But bilateral leg weakness one of the greatest mistakes made in terminology in words used in this town in sports forever changed how people felt about Joe. And Joe went from being what I perceived to a lot of people as the hometown hero, hometown kid, good for Joe, to being, and this is the saddest thing, a punch a punchline. He became a yeah. punchline because that became a punchline. If they had given us anything else, and said, you know what, Joe, okay, let's talk about this publicly, but here's, you know, here's what's wrong. But to come up with a term that nobody knew uh, changed was basically the diving board, the jumping off point for people to turn on Joe. And, and it went from being, hey, it's Joe Maurer of Creighton to, oh, man, that guy can't play, can't stay healthy. Yes. So, all right, let's unpack this because I think you're right. I mean, if like think about how much different Joe Maurer's public image would be in this town if they had said he has complications from knee surgery or a setback from knee surgery, and he's just going to have to miss some more time. Like the the knee is just not because he had the cleanup knee surgery in the yeah. off season. Yes. And if, if they had said, yeah, he's just like, his knee is bothering him and it's a setback from surgery instead of people thinking he's a wuss because what's by, what's this 
bilateral leg weakness. He's just got weak legs. Like, you know, people, people didn't know how to interpret it. And as, as, as far as I had heard um, covering that team, it sounds like they just sort of, cause they were on the road in Tampa. And, and by the way, just to back up a step, it wasn't just a knee injury. Things happened with Joe Maurer medically in that season that we still don't know the full extent of. The twins were very much like keeping some things private. I don't know how serious things were. I don't know. Like they, they were, they were investigating beyond like, oh, there's some tissue in his knee, right? Yes. Um, but Maurer's never really been public about it. The twins have never really been super public about it. And then Maurer, of course, came back to hit 300 a bunch of years in a row. And it was like, all right, well, I guess he's back. And then uh, eventually he had to move out from behind, uh, uh, home plate and became a first baseman. But, but I, so I think the twins were wrestling with like, all right, it's not just a knee. There's something else happening here. Something like back related or joint related or something's happening here. And we don't really know what it is yet. And so in that moment of, well, you got to put him on the disabled list and, you know, Bill Smith has to tell reporters something on the road or, or at least pass something down to Ron Gardenhire. And I guess it was like Bill Smith, like wrote on a piece of paper, you know, having talked to the team doctors, like, you know, what should we tell the media? And it was like written on a piece of paper, bilateral leg weakness and handed, I think Gardy made the announcement in the clubhouse or something. But if like, if you could go back and do it all over again, all right, we don't know what's wrong with him. Something's wrong with him. It goes beyond the knee, but like, in the absence of having a clear answer, mm-hmm. let's let's just tell the media he's having some complications from his surgery. Just lie. Like they literally could have lied and protected yes. or told a half truth. The and meniscus protected. is not right. Right. Like that's all you have or to like, say. Yeah, his like, we're not or even like, like no, it's not. But even think about this, like even if you just say that his leg is bothering him, yeah. When you say that it's both legs and it's bilateral leg weakness, yes. now you open up to like, well, my God, like Do what you know what I've realized now though? And at the time, I, I knew that people were were pissed. And I knew that there were a lot of, of old curmudgeonly sports fans being like, what a what a wuss, right? But here's what I now, um, what, nine years after the fact, realize. We had delved into what you would now clearly call sports politics. That term is the same to some people as wear a mask now. Think about it. Because think about yeah. the reaction. It was, whoa, that guy can't play. What, what, I don't even understand this. It, seriously, yeah. it's now, now I would call it sports politics because it's the same type of mentality that you see now from people who have no patience for things that they think are fake. And people and thought then, that was fake. Yep. And then, the, and then the other phrase, too, when he would sit out with general soreness, right? He's got general soreness. And, and so, like, Jimmy you literally had fans. <laughs> you literally had fans in the stands at Target Field with Joe Maurer jerseys. And instead of Maurer on the back, they would tape general soreness on the back of their jerseys. Like, and again, some of this is on Maurer too. You know, Maurer <laughs> has always been just a super private, reserved guy. And he, he's never felt the need to like defend himself. And to some extent, I admire that. And, and I try to, you know, to be that too. Like, I just, I, I don't react to tweets the way that I would have 10 years ago. And like Joe Maurer, is very stoic. And I think, I think you probably get a lot more satisfaction out of life. If, if you can be as stoic and non-reactive as Joe Maurer, but yes. at some point you got to stand up for yourself yes. and your legacy and your and, image matters. Like you yeah. can't just let people crap on you consistently. And they did. But the sad thing was that that season and that injury and that excuse followed him around for the rest of his career and really did taint it. Yes. Like it, it yeah, dude, was never think, the same. I really think, you know, again, having 
covered that team and having covered Joe from 2009 slash 10 into like 2013 on a near daily basis. Yep. Uh, that dude was size wise, not built to be a catcher. He was six foot three, six foot four, 200 some pounds. He's not that like you, you think of built to be a catcher a little bit lower to the ground. So you're not going to have to deal with as many, you know, joint issues and knees and stuff. And not, and you and, don't need a great player. Like it helps to have a good player, but you don't need a, a guy who is clearly a hall of fame caliber right. guy as far as at the plate. But here's what I want to make very clear that Joe Maurer played through more discomfort and more pain than he ever let on. And people view him as weak. Like people view him as he's not, he's, you know, he's one of the least tough players. Like if you start, if you give him a toughness score based on what fans think, it would be very low. But if you gave him an actual toughness score based on what he grinded out throughout his career in knee and back issues and whatever else he had concussion issues, like he is one of the tougher players, but because he's clean shaven and he's soft spoken and he's not a guy who's going to get his uniform super dirty all the time, sliding into first base. He was viewed differently than I think the reality was. And a lot of that goes back to the 2011 bilateral leg weakness definition. If, if Maurer and Morneau don't get hurt. So, you know, let, let's say that Justin does not suffer the concussion in Toronto um, when sliding into second to break up the double play. Let's say that Joe has, has a relatively healthy career because he did catch. How much different is the Twins track uh, starting then in 2011 and are both going into the Hall of Fame? I'll answer quick and I'll say yes. I think yeah. absolutely yes. I think both of them were on the track to be Hall of Fame players. And I still think Joe Maurer is a Hall of Fame player. He's probably not going to be first ballot just because of how difficult it is to be a first ballot Hall of Famer in today's day and age. But I, I think if those two core players have relatively healthy seasons and they're still basically borderline all-stars every year, then yes, I, I think they're Hall of Fame and you have your two pillars and you have to still get pitching, but those are your two, your two pillars that you've built around and you would have had more sustained success. Uh, I think... I think, well, I think Joe Maurer might be a Hall of Famer anyways. Right. Sure. Uh, when it's all said and done. I think I think the answer for Justin Morneau is yes. I think I think Justin Morneau, so Justin Morneau's career after 2010, up, so up to 2010, let's just take that for a second, okay? Up to 2010, four all-star appearances, 29 years old, 181 career home runs. Uh, he was on, so he was on, Justin Morneau was on pace to go well past a thousand career RBIs. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he was probably on pace for 400 plus career home runs. He never hit more than 19 home runs in a season after the age of 28 because of injuries. Justin Morneau. Think about that. Like when you're 28 years old, you should have Josh Donaldson's like 33, 34. And, and he still hits 30 home runs. Like Justin Morneau probably would have played at a 30 home run, 100 RBI level for another five years after that. And instead he never even got over 19 home runs, never even got over 82 RBIs, like the numbers that he lost out on. Um, I think he probably lost out on at least a hundred career home runs, which would have put him between 350 and 400, which maybe isn't a hall of fame level, but maybe he then plays like he had to retire when he was 35. Maybe he winds up playing until he's 38 because he's a great hitter. Mm-hmm. So it did it, it. 2011 drastically impacted both those guys careers. Um, one more thing here just before we wrap this episode, Francisco Liriano's no hitter. Is it one of the more forgotten obscure twins achievements in franchise history? May 3rd, 2011, nine innings, two strikeouts. 
Yeah. Only two strikeouts, yeah. six walks. Yeah. And coming into that game, he had a 9.13 earned run average. He was just off to a terrible start. Yeah. Had some arm issues and he winds up no hitting the Chicago White Sox on May 3rd. <laughs> it's it is and it should be. As I've always said, if you walk six, it's a little league no hitter. You're so wild people can't hit you. It's uh it's fine, but my God, I mean, I'm I'm sorry. You know, walk two, I don't care. Walk three, maybe walk six. Uh yes, it's forgotten. It should be among the among the feats that we would uh look in the media guide that the twins have and say, you know, that was a great day. That was a great accomplishment. I'm sorry. The no no that you saw Phil Mackey on the south side of Chicago shortly before you nearly had an incident, an accident, um, is not one of the great accomplishments in Twins history. It is largely forgotten, and that's okay with me. Well, it wasn't even one of the great accomplishments of the night, to be honest with you. This is your own doing, by the way, though. Tell the story, because this is your own. This is self-inflicted damage. I mean, we've all done this, but it's self-inflicted. So, all right. So I'm in Chicago covering this game. And, uh, and we're, you know, it's, it's by the time you get done, uh, yeah, cause I was a writer and I'm also preparing for the next day's radio show and, and, and whatnot. And, and so we're probably in the press box, the clubhouse in the press box until midnight or after. Mm-hmm. And so it's me, Lavelli Neal, Rep Bollinger. I think that was the trio. We said, all right, let's, we're all done. Let's, let's go get some late night grub here and decompress what we just saw. Holy cow. Yeah, let's saw, talk about those six blocks. That's great. <laughs> but like, we just saw a no hitter. And by the way, that's the second no hitter I've seen in person. How like, how crazy is that? Yeah. I've seen two no hitters. I've never in seen person. one in person. Yeah. It's just, you know, luck of the draw. And so we went to Mother Hubbard's sports bar, downtown Chicago. Great spot. Like 200 TVs, great wings, everything. And um, I, I just remember um, I was staying in a hotel, the Swiss hotel. I remember it, it was four blocks away from Mother Hubbard's. I, just, I remember like dropping my stuff off and then walking four blocks to Mother Hubbard's, going to Mother Hubbard's. And I had a patty melt, some tater tots and some hot wings and a couple of beers. And you guys know me, like my stomach does not. Yeah. Which is why this is it self- was a mistake. Which is why this is self-inflicted, Declan. Yeah, it was a mistake. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so we're, it's like two o'clock in the morning and like this place, I think it's maybe even open till four. I, so we start walking out and I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to walk back to my place and go crash for the night. And as I step foot outside, stomach starts rumbling. You get the gurgle. And it's dropping quick. It's descending quickly, if you know what I mean. Like dumb and dumber style. And I'm thinking, okay, that's all right. I'm just, I'm just a few blocks away. Like I'll be, I'll be okay for the walk home. And I start to, I start to walk. I'm like two blocks, and I realize two things. Number one, wow, this is going to be a closer call than I thought. (laughs) And number two, I think I'm walking in the wrong direction, and I'm not a hundred percent sure. Let me pull out my map on my iPhone and see what's what's happening here. And because everybody was on their phones, it's downtown Chicago, and it was the early days of iPhones, like my phone wouldn't find my point on the map. So like I couldn't like technologically, I couldn't see where I was going. It's dark out. And now I'm starting to panic and make it worse. And so I'm literally like looking down alleys for emergency. Have you guys ever had it that bad? Where like yep. you're like, oh no, yep. no, I've never looked down an yes. alley. <laughs> yes. I have I I have, I could have a lot of stories on similar situations you've been in Phil but yes I've I've been down that road
been down that road. So I'm like, I'm like looking, I'm trying like in, in like it's two o'clock in the morning. So bar, some bars are closing and stuff. And like, I'm just like panicking. And so I finally get up to this intersection and I see a cab driver sitting there and I look in the window and so his car is off and he's sleeping. Like he's pulled over and he's taking a nap in his seat. So I knock on the window and wake him up and he rolls the window and I said, Hey, can you take me to the Swiss hotel? And I just got this panic, panic look on my face and he doesn't say anything. He just opens the door. He reaches across, opens the door, starts the car. And I said, uh, yep, Swiss hotel. And he, again, doesn't say anything, pulls forward a half a block, oh my God. stops. Yep. And I look out and I, and I was like, I was literally a half a block from the oh Swiss hotel. God. I just didn't know where I was. I gave the guy a $20 bill because I felt terrible because I woke him up and for no reason I ran inside and like, did, did you get up? To of course room? I'm on like, I'm on like the 27th floor, the so, longest elevator ride of all time. Oh, you should have used the lobby bathroom. I didn't know where, I didn't know where it was. I had to make you a decision. Where the hotel was, let alone the hotel. Lobby Identify bathroom. the lobby bathrooms at all times. Dude, you, <laughs> walk, you, walk in, nice. you walk into the hotel and it's like, you have two choices. Cause you think you have 30 seconds. You can spend 30 seconds looking for the lobby bathroom, or you can get into the elevator where you know there's a bathroom and just hold on for dear life. Did you consider when when it started to gurgle as you came out of the bar, just going back in the bar? It wasn't gurgling to that extent. Okay. I thought so I thought I had okay. four blocks. Okay. I thought I had four blocks. Well, and turns out. And it turns out I did. You did, but. yes. <laughs> I got two words for uh, you, buddy. You might argue that what happened in that diaper. bathroom was. You might argue that what happened in that bathroom is a great microcosm and analogy for what happened with the rest of that twin season. And that game too. <laughs> Six walks. He, cra- he crapped the bed and threw a no hitter. <laughs> and with that, that's the end of Minnesota sports rewind for today. And maybe ever. <laughs> no, it's a good run for it. Fun. You can, uh, you can find full episodes where, where we've adopted this into Mackie and Judd, the podcast, uh, but you can also find full episodes isolated episodes and interviews on the Minnesota Sports Rewind podcast feed, Apple, Spotify, and scorenorth.com. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Bakers, fresh for everyone.